Acts chapter 6, the message is entitled, Finding the Right Kind of Man, this morning. And all the single ladies are like, amen, right? (laughs) Okay, Uh, now that I've got your interest (laughs) piqued by the sermon title, uh, let me just preface everything that we're about to say by saying that this is not an ad for Christian Mingle or any other... (laughs) <laughs> or any other Christian uh, dating service. Uh, it is not that. Uh, as a matter of fact, it ties into what we learned last week in Acts chapter 6 when we were talking about uh, the deacon and the church body and how the church grows. And when there, there's a blessing of growth, there's also a, a, a burden uh, that happens in normal church growth. There's issues that arise when disciples multiply, murmuring multiplied in the church in Acts chapter 6. And there were some needs that weren't being met, and we saw how the early church and how the apostles uh, trusted in the Lord and stepped into action to alleviate some of those challenges. Uh, And the way they did that was they looked out among themselves, and they recommended men who I believe ultimately became the first deacons in the Bible, even though that word is not used in Acts chapter 6. Leadership uh, was, was expanded to grow, uh, to help with the growing needs of the church. And, and so, you know, we talked about how we as a church, uh, we are experiencing growth. We're seeing disciples multiplied and maybe not 3,000 or 5,000 or multitudes of men and women, but in the context of our local church, we're seeing growth and, and, and that also presents challenges. And challenges aren't something to run from. They're actually something to embrace and encounter so that God's word can continue to go forward. So I want you to look at Acts chapter 6. I just want to remind you again of the text And then we're going to end up in 1 Timothy 3 today, but let's read the story together. Verses 1 to 6, it says, In those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And remember, we talked about last week that God has a heart for the widow. God has a heart for those that are afflicted. Uh, A widow is someone who lost, obviously, their spouse, and that not only personally hurt, but but then there's also the the day-to-day, like who's going to provide for, for, for... the wife who's going to provide for the children in the home. So it's, it's an affliction that God has a heart for, and God has a lot to say in the Bible about ministering to widows and, and to the fatherless, okay? And so there's this murmuring going on, and, and, and so verse 2 says, the 12 called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it's not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. And so there's a clear distinction between the apostles' ministry the word of God and prayer, and what needed to happen within the local church body. So verse 3 says, Wherefore, brethren, look out, look, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the same pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And of course, uh, the result of that was that the word of God continued to increase in that church body. And so literally what we see is an offloading of some responsibilities and needs to a different office within the local church, the office ultimately that would become the office of the deacon, because even those 12 apostles couldn't do everything. As a matter of fact, they even said it's unreasonable that we leave the word of God in prayer to serve tables. It doesn't mean that they were better than anybody else. It didn't mean that they didn't want to be Christ-like and serve the body. But the way that they served the body was to pray and to study the word of God to feed the flock of God, okay? And so, and so this morning, we're continuing this study on, 
on what God's word says about the deacon. And we need to understand the biblical process and we need to understand the biblical qualifications. And maybe you've been in church all your life and maybe this is old news to you and that, praise the Lord for that. But, but I would expect there are newer people that come to Christ and there are newer people in the church that really don't understand biblically what a deacon is. Or, or what the biblical process of, of choosing and appointing deacons in the body of Christ. So this is important. This is real-world scenario for every local church, and that's why we're taking the time to talk about it. And so as we, as we get into it today, we're going to have two points. Next week is the continuation of this message, because there's no way I'm going to get done today. All right? You guys cool with that? Okay, so we'll go as far as we can get, and at 12.15, we'll stop. Uh, look, at, look at point number one in your notes. So we're going to look at the biblical process and then the biblical qualifications. So point number one is this. A deacon must have the right kind of recommendation. They're, they must have the right kind of recommendation. And, and I want you to go back to Acts 6 and verse 3. And look what it says. Here's what the apostles tell the local church. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you. Seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And so there was a, there was a responsibility to, the, to and of the church body to be involved in this process, okay? And I love that phrase, look ye out among you. And so the instruction came from the apostles, or you could say the pastors of the church at Jerusalem, to the body of the believers, look out among you. In other words, God has put together a local body, and in this scenario, it was the church at Jerusalem, and within that church was everything and everyone needed to do the work of the ministry. In other words, when we have needs in our church family, in our church body, we need to look first and foremost within ourselves. Does that make sense? God, God builds and edifies the body within itself. It edifies itself. It grows within itself. And among us, Community Fellowship, is everyone that we need to minister to this body and to minister in love. We already have everybody we need. Now, we have, we have more people to reach. So I'm not saying that, hey, we're content with being a, a church of 100 or 150. We're not content with that. But with the issues and challenges that we have and the opportunities that we have, we have everybody that we need. So what that means is that every member is called to minister in some form or fashion. Every member is called to minister in some form or fashion, listen, within this body of believers. I'm going to read something to you, and, you know, sometimes I have to ask for grace when I read things. Can I, can I ask you to give me grace right now as I read this? Uh, I don't know if you heard this week. Did you hear about uh, one of our most coveted church members that passed this week? Did you, did you hear about it? Did you get the email? You didn't get the email. This morning, I'm saddened to report to you uh, the death of one of our church's most valuable members, someone else. Someone else is the member that passed away. Someone's passing created a vacancy in our church that's going to be very difficult to fill. You see, else has been with us for many, many years. The truth is, they've been with us since the very beginning. And every one of those years, someone did far more than the normal person's share of work around here. Whenever leadership was mentioned, this wonderful person was looked to for inspiration as well as results. Someone else could work with that group. Whenever there was a job to do, a class to teach, a meeting to attend, a room to clean, a toilet to scrub, 
One's name was on everyone's lips. Let someone else do it. You see, it was common knowledge that someone else was among the largest givers in the church. Whenever there's a financial need, everyone assumed that someone else would just make up the difference. Someone else was a wonderful person, sometimes even appearing superhuman. But a person can only do so much. Well, the truth is known. Everyone expected too much of someone else. And now someone else is gone. And we wonder what we're going to do. I mean, someone else left a wonderful example for us to follow, but who's going to follow it? Who's going to do the things that someone else did? We have to remember this morning that we can't depend on someone else anymore. You see, someone else in most churches is the most valuable player. Someone else is the one that everyone depends on. Someone else is the one that does the bulk of the work and the bulk of the ministry. And when the, when the needs are evident, well, someone else always steps in. But I'm sad to tell you this morning that as far as community fellowship is concerned, someone else has died. And they're buried, and they're not coming back. And what that means is, within the context of our church, we have everybody that we need to do ministry. But we need everybody to be available and willing to do ministry. In other words, we need 100% participation. And I, and I dare say in every church there's a challenge with that. Uh, the question is not, is someone else ministering? The question is, are you ministering? Or are you depending on someone else to do what, in your heart, you know really needs to be done by you? You see, I hate to break it to you, but someone else has died, and, and again, they're not making a comeback. And so we need to move forward. We need to be thankful for their memory. But we need to move forward in faith. And so here's the, here's the key in your notes. You guys okay? You gave me a little grace there, right? Everybody good? Okay. Here's the key in our notes that we have to understand. You see, the recommendation for deacons came from within the church body. And it was from those that were already qualified. It was from those that were already qualified. And, and I think that's a beautiful thing that God wants us to learn. That we need to, we need to start within. We, we have to look within. You see, when you go outside the context of a local church for leadership and for servants or even for pastors, let me just say that, you risk bringing in undesirable consequences. But when you are, are trusting the Lord to not only grow the church but grow leaders within the church, well, then you, you know what you're getting. Does that make sense? You're, you're reproducing after your own kind. Second Peter 2 verse 1 talks about false teachers and false prophets coming into the church and bringing in with them damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. You see, we need to start our, our, our search for, for, for need within the church, within the, the body of Christ that God has given us. And the greatest example of that, of course, is Jesus Christ, right? The greatest example of any servant to the body of Christ is Christ himself. And in Luke chapter 22, we have the story, one of the stories of the Last Supper. In verse 24, there was strife among the apostles, the disciples. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? Now, that's always interesting to me because those disciples were always jockeying for the position of greatest. But what was interesting, there was only one that was greatest, right? And it was Christ. So, so you, the position's not even open. I mean, it's not even available. And yet there was strife amongst them. And so Christ said to them, the king of the Gentiles exercised lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so, 
But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth. And, and, and the question is, if you're the one throwing the party, are you the greatest? Or, or the one serving the meat at the party, is he the greatest? And the obvious answer is the one that owns the party, right? The one that's hosting the party. This is the Last Supper. This is Christ's Last Supper with the disciples. And he says, you know, he says in that verse, whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. And what Christ is saying is, look, this is my supper, and I'm the greatest. And yet, I'm among you as he that serveth. The greatest servants are among us as a church body, and they should be recognizable. Christ was the greatest servant amongst his disciples, and yet he served. Many of you know John chapter 13, right? The story where Jesus washed his disciples' feet, verses 13 to 17. You can't miss this. It says, you call me master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I've done to you. Verily, verily, I say to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Neither than he, he, he is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. And what a powerful passage. You see, the problem in most Christians' lives is that they know that text. Most of you probably know that text. Let's just be honest, right? We, we know that text. We've heard that story. You see, the problem isn't that there's, there's a shortage of Christians that understand that. There's a shortage of Christians that actually do that. That's the problem. He's, Christ says, listen, if you know these things, you're happy. That's not what he said. He says, if you know these things, happier ye if you, you do them. And the specific context is serving other people. It's serving the body of Christ. The problem is in modern Christianity, we have people that know that, they just don't do that. I'm not saying that's the case here. I'm just saying in general. And we continue to pursue happiness as Christians in every other avenue of life. With, with sports, with hobbies, with a job, with a career, with, with our family. We pursue happiness in every other thing. And the thing that tells us, the Word of God tells us, listen, if you'll learn to serve the body of Christ, well, that'll bring you true happiness. And, and we have to understand that. We have to, we have to not just know that, but we have to actually do that. And so a deacon has to have the right recommendation. God's called us to look out among ourselves. Let me ask you this question. Would you recommend you for service in the local church? Would you recommend you? And if not you, then who? And somebody else sitting on the table because they're dead. I'm sorry I didn't send you the, the notice this week, but I think after this morning you get the point. We've got to have the right kind of recommendation. We ought to be able to see these people already serving like Christ within the body of Christ, okay? And those are the people that we need to look for specifically in the role of a deacon in our church family. Okay, and then, and then point number two, let's hurry. Point number two is this, a deacon must have the right kind of life. So, so the biblical process is that we look amongst ourselves within our local body. So, so deacons and the, the office of a deacon and the office of a pastor are, are specifically 
confined to the local church context. In other words, we're not going to ask deacons from other churches to come deacon here because that's not a biblical process at all. And then secondly, a deacon's got to have the right kind of life. Look back at verse 3. It says, Wherefore, brethren, look out among you, look ye out among you, I'll get it right in a second, seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, who may, we may appoint over this business. And so, and so in Acts chapter 6, you get a very short list of qualifications. And we're going to take what we find in Acts chapter 6, and then we're going to go to 1 Timothy 3, and we're going to see the rest of the qualifications that God reveals for us concerning the deacon. And let me just say this as we get into this, and, and, and I think this is understood, but if it's not, I want to make it clear. While this list applies to those specifically that would serve in the office of a deacon, I think it goes without saying that this should be the character quality of every Christian, whether you're a deacon or not, whether you're a pastor or not. In other words, what we're going to talk about for the rest of this service is what every Christian should look like, the character quality of Christ-likeness in our life. And so as we go through this list, uh, let's do examination of ourselves and say, hey, do I meet the qualification? Okay, number one, honest report. A, a deacon must have an honest report. Okay, this would be what would be reported of you. In other words, this would be uh, what you're known for. Would others look at your life and say that you are an honest person? Don't answer out loud. You see, honest report is, is a picture of what our life should be like in Christ because Christ was honest, right? Christ was truth. The Bible tells us in Titus 1 and verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, listen, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. And so you can't be a liar and be honest at the same time. Does that make sense? You too can be a pastor, man. That's really, that's really as simple as it is right there. Uh, do you realize that if God ever lied once that he couldn't be God, God can't tell lies. If he told one lie, even a white lie, you know, the stuff we tell. Okay, the stuff you tell, whatever. Okay. <laughs> Man, he couldn't be God if he did that. Look at Hebrews 6 and verse 18. It says, by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. God can't lie or he ceases to be God. And so God has called us to have an honest report. And so Romans 12 tells us we have to we have to be honest in our interaction as Christians. Romans 12 and verse 17, recompense that no, to no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of how many men? Now listen, I think it goes without saying that we should have honesty within the body of Christ, but don't you think we need it out there too? Don't you think we need it out there as we try to witness to people and share the gospel with people? The greatest complaint against Christianity is that we're all a bunch of See, you've heard that reputation too. The question is, are we somehow promoting that, that reputation, right? Are, are we and our behavior in the lost world giving the lost world credibility to report evil of us and to report that we're dishonest? Romans 13, verses 13 to 14 says, Let us walk honestly as in the day. And then he gives you some things not to do, not in rioting and drunkenness or, or in chambering or wantonness, not in strife or envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. If you're going to walk honest, you're going to look like Christ and make no provision of the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So the opposite of honesty 
is dishonesty. And that has no place in the life of a Christian. That's a good spot for an amen. You kind of missed the softball. I mean, I threw it up. Dishonesty has no place in the life of a Christian. And that doesn't matter if it's your job, if you work for a secular company or a secular business. Dishonesty has no place in a Christian's life, has no place in your family, has no place with your children, and it certainly has no place within the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 is not on the screen, but listen to this. Paul writes and he says, Seeing therefore we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but we've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. As a Christian, we need to renounce the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. But by the manifestation of the truth, we need to commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. We need to have an honest report. So, so if someone called my employer and the first question that was asked was, is this guy honest or not? What would they say? What would they say? Hebrews 13 and verse 18 says that we need to pray, pray for us, that we, uh, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. Are you willing to live honestly? If you're not, you're willing to live dishonestly. And that doesn't, that doesn't bring Christ glory. As a matter of fact, that actually breaks the, the mold and the image that God wants to portray through our life. And, and so what the early church was called to do was, number one, look for honest people within the church body. If you're a chronic liar, you're disqualified to serve as a deacon. If you're dishonest, if you live a different way outside these four walls than inside these four walls, you have no business serving the body of Christ. You need to repent. You need to repent and get right with Christ because it blasphemes his very name. Number two, we need to be looking for people full of the Holy Ghost. Full of the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? Well, the first thing it does is it, it, it again, pictures Christ. Because again, Luke chapter 4 and verse 1, the Bible says that Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, and he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And, and listen, Christ is God for sure, God in the flesh, but he was also full of the Holy Ghost. In other words, he yielded himself to the leading of the Holy Ghost in his life. And when we do that, we picture Christ through our life. Being filled with the Holy Ghost is something that's commanded to every Christian. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. The Bible says in verse 18, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. And all the, all the legalistic Baptists say amen right there. Don't even touch it. Okay, well, the problem is they don't finish the sentence. Because just as much as drunkenness is forbidden, being filled with the Spirit is commanded. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And that's the part that many of us leave out. Well, I never touch this stuff. It ain't found in my refrigerator. It's not in my cabinet. Okay, well, that's awesome. But let me ask you a question. That doesn't automatically mean that you're filled with the Spirit. And let me tell you how you know you're filled with the Spirit of God because there's not a period at the end of verse 18. Actually, it's a semicolon, and, and punctuation matters. Look at verse 19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And, and so there is a connection between being filled with the Spirit and speaking. As a matter of fact, we see this all the way through the Bible. 
And, and so here's a key principle in your notes. When a person is filled with the Spirit of God, one of the first things to be controlled is the tongue. Buckle up. The first thing to get control is the tongue. We see it in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4. The Bible says they were filled with the Holy Ghost. This is the day of Pentecost. And immediately what happened was they began to speak with other tongues. Are you saying, Jay, that we have the, the sign gifts today of speaking in tongues? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm proving the point that when a man is filled with the Spirit of God and the Holy Ghost, it's going to affect what comes out of his mouth. Acts chapter 2 and verse 11 says what came out of those apostles' mouths were the wonderful works of God. Acts 2 and verse 11, it says, we do hear them speak in our tongues. What do we hear them speak? Some angelic language? No. They're speaking the wonderful works of God. Acts chapter 4 and verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said... And this is the famous passage, man, Acts chapter 4. Peter is just, man, Acts 2 all the way through. Peter is filled with the Holy Ghost. Every time he opens his mouth, he begins to preach the gospel and preach Christ to the people that need to hear it. Acts chapter 4 and verse 31. When they, uh, when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. So how do you know if someone is full of the Holy Ghost? You can measure the words coming out of their mouth. You can also measure the psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs coming out of their mouth because they're spiritual. Or you can measure the absence of those things. Well, I just don't like to sing. Well, if you get full of the Holy Ghost, it would fix that. It would fix that. It would also fix everything else that comes out of your mouth. Because what would start coming out would be the words of God. The wonderful works of God and the word of God. Sometimes we're real comfortable, man, in church, just, just coming to church. We're not drunk with wine. We're in his excess. But you know what? We're not really full of the Spirit many times. And there's no measure of word that would come out of our mouth that would prove without a shadow of a doubt, that we really are full of the Spirit of God. But we're comfortable sitting in church. Are you, you guys okay right now? God says that we need to look amongst ourselves men of honest report, so that means that we can see that. And number two, we need to look for men that are full of the Holy Ghost. That means that's observable. How do you measure that? Well, you measure it with words. You measure it with rejoicing in the Lord. You measure it with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You measure it with the word of God being spoken with boldness because it's a spiritual book that requires the power of the Spirit to communicate it. Number three, we need to look for men that are full of wisdom. And again, when we look at this characteristic and this qualification, again, this pictures Christ because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 24, it says, Unto them which are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, Christ didn't just have the wisdom of God. He wasn't just full of the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. And so, so a Christian needs to be full of God's Holy Spirit. 
And they need to be full of God's wisdom, full of Christ. And as we're talking about a deacon, man, we don't want people that are full of the world's wisdom. And can I just tell you, and I don't know your background in church world. I know some of your backgrounds. And here's how it shakes out in, in some churches, man. Just because someone is a, a successful businessman, just because someone has a high standing in the community, just because someone is well-known uh, or, or whatever, maybe they've accomplished a lot of secular things in their life, that's all fantastic. But God is not looking for worldly wisdom within the body of Christ. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, it says, Where are the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. We don't need smart people. We need people dumb enough to believe this book. I'm telling you. And I look around the room, you all qualify, so you're welcome. Thanks for being here this morning. I don't see any smart people in the room. <laughs> I know, man. Gosh, turn it, turn it down. It's okay. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 19. It says, The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For as it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. Do you know that the world's wisdom doesn't, it doesn't even get God's attention? It just doesn't. It, God says that is the dumbest, foolish mess. Whatever secular reasoning and human wisdom can come up with at the end of the day, God says that's foolishness. What God says we need is his wisdom, and his wisdom comes from his book, and it comes from his spirit. We, we need to get it from the word of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world. That's why we don't give you self-help speeches from the pulpit. Ten steps to make your life financially secure. Five steps to better your marriage. What we do is we open the word of God because we need God's spiritual wisdom in our life. We don't need the wisdom of this world. We don't need the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto glory. James chapter 3 talks about that the wisdom of God comes from above. And it's first pure. And it's peaceable. And it's gentle. And it's easy to be entreated. And it's full of mercy and good fruit. And it's without partiality. And it's without hypocrisy. So if we're going to get full of wisdom, we've got to get full of God's word. We've got to get full of God's word. And as it relates to the deacon, let me just tell you, we need people that have God's spirit. So they need to be saved, but they need to be full of God's spirit. And they need God's wisdom to navigate the issues and challenges of ministry. We don't need, oh, let me just move on because I'm going to get in trouble. Here's the question. Can, can we open our Bible and apply biblical wisdom to any situation? That's who we're looking for. Can, can we find somebody that can open their Bible and say, well, listen, here's the, here's the issue. Here are widows being neglected in the daily ministration. What does the Word of God say about that? You're safe with that question. Right off the bat, what does God's Word say about that? Let's go to the Word of God. Let's get God's wisdom and God's mind for this situation and then apply wisdom toward it from the Scriptures. That's what God's looking for, and that's what our church needs. And, and again, man, I'm not trying to be an idiot, but we don't need secular wisdom in the church. We don't need successful businessmen 
that can strategize and, and think according to worldly standards. And again, I'm not against successful businessmen. I'm not against, against look, I worked 20 years in the medical field. If you want to rattle off some, 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 some things and go head to head, man, we'll go, okay? We'll talk about some hard, difficult things that I've seen and learned and, and done. But at the end of the day, that book trumps it all. It supersedes it all. And so those are the people that we need to, to find. Now, did you get 1 Timothy 3 in your hand? Your right hand's probably numb now because we haven't had you turn the page. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So in Acts chapter 6, what we're seeing is the beginnings of what ultimately becomes the office of the deacon. And so as we compare Scripture with Scripture and we get to 1 Timothy 3, there's more requirements. And that's very interesting to me because, again, I think God's progressive revelation shows us really God's intent and heart behind this thing. And so this is a continuation of the Word of God's requirement, let me remind you, for every Christian. God's called you to be honest. God's called you to be full of the Spirit of God. God called you to be full of wisdom. Look at 1 Timothy 3 and verse 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of faith and a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved... Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, uh, not slanderous, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children in their own house as well. And so we're going to work through the, the rest of your notes. I know we're only at point number two. We'll hit it fast. The, the, the additional qualifications that God gives, gives us in this passage, first and foremost, grave. That doesn't mean dead. It doesn't mean in the, in the ground, like grave as in buried. Literally, that word translated in other places carries with it the same equivalency of honesty. We saw an honest report in Acts chapter 6. We see grave in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 8. To be grave means that you have integrity so that the image matches the reality because you're called to be a Christian. And Christ, well, Christ is honest. He's truthful. There is no lie in him. And so, and so we need to carry the image of Christ. Uh, the second uh, characteristic found in, in 1 Timothy is not double-tongued. Not double-tongued. In other words, a person that doesn't talk out of both sides of their mouth says this in this situation, but turn around and says this in this situation, and they're completely opposite. That's double-tongued. Double-tongued comes from being double-minded. James chapter 1 and verse 8. It says a double-minded man is what? He's unstable in how many of his ways? All of his ways. The Bible says in James 3 and verse 8, but the tongue can no man tame. It's an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men. And all the Baptists said, yeah, that, that's true. Which after, you curse the guy in the traffic too, I know you do. Which also are made after the similitude of God, out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. So God's looking for not people that aren't double-tongued. And again, we learned earlier that if we're full of the Holy Ghost, well, that'll take care of our tongue. We won't be double-tongued in our life. Number three, not given to much wine, okay? Wine is a mocker, Proverbs 20 and verse 1, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. So, so wine brings with it mocking, raging, and deception, Isaiah 28 and verse 7, the Bible says, but they also have erred through wine 
and through strong drink are they out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are gone out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision and they stumble, listen, in judgment. And God has a standard for leadership. And we could get into the, the, the specifics of what that means, not given to wine versus not given to much wine, because the pastor and the deacon have seemingly two different standards. But let me just tell you, either way, it's going to influence your judgment. And, and as we're called to, to minister in the body of Christ and to minister judgment to handle situations, why would you want to be under the influence of anything else other than the Spirit of God and the Word of God? Not, not greedy of filthy lucre is the fourth one. Not greedy of filthy lucre. That has to do with money. What's interesting in this is that filthy lucre is found five times in the Word of God. And in every single instance, it's addressing someone in leadership in the local church. That's, that's a very interesting observation uh, if you are a student of the Bible. And all five times, it's dealing with pastoral leadership and deacon leadership. Okay, The first mention of the word filthy is in Job 15 and verse 16, and it's connected with abomination and iniquity. Job 15 and verse 16 says, How much more abominable and filthy is man that drinketh iniquity like water? And so that word filthy lucre, it talks about just sinful, abominable money. Now, I just need to help us understand that God's perspective of money is, is, is different than our perspective. Can I just tell you that? God's perspective of money is that it's filthy, that it's unrighteous. Look at Luke 16 and verse 11. It says, If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who shall commit to your trust the true riches? God says that the things of this world, and especially money, is just unrighteous mammon. It's not the true riches. It's filthy lucre. And as it relates to leadership in the church, God says, you better be careful, man. A, a, a deacon, a person in leadership should not be greedy of filthy lucre. In other words, there's a, there's a temptation there. There's, a, there's an issue there that has to be taken into consideration. You see, a man that's greedy of gain and desires the office of leadership in a church for self-gain and self-indulgence, he will trouble that church. Proverbs 15 and verse 27. Check this out. He that's greedy of gain troubleth his own house. And we know from, from Timothy that the church of God is the house of God. He that's greedy of gain troubleth his own house, but he that hateth gifts shall live. And I can't tell you, man, you, you know, you know, most of you have been around church world long enough, man. You know that there's been financial uh, uh, cover-ups within churches, man. People laundering money, stealing money, deacons stealing money, pastors stealing money, secretaries stealing money. I'm just telling you, if you're greedy of gain, you're going to trouble the house. You're going to trouble the church of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a red flag. And, and so we don't get into the ministry for the financial benefit or the financial remuneration. When God called me to come be the pastor here, my pastor told me, hey, congratulations, Jay, the church uh, wants to extend the invitation for you to become the pastor uh, at this church, and uh, they can't pay you, and you need to keep working. <laughs> and I was like, well, thank you. Those other things are irrelevant. I could care less because I know what God's called me to do. 
I know how God's gifted me. I know what God's called me to do. It doesn't matter. Getting a paycheck or not doesn't, doesn't determine or dictate whether or not I'm going to do ministry because I know who God's called me to, to be and what God's called me to do. And so let me also say this concerning this point of filthy lucre because, you know, that, that last illustration talks about within the church body how if we don't have the right people, there can be questionable stewardship of God's resources. But can I talk about outside the body of Christ for just a second? And can I just maybe put this also in your consideration that a man that works himself to death outside of the local church and is not available to do any work of the ministry also is greedy of filthy lucre. In other words, if he, if he works 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week, and he doesn't consider the needs of the ministry or the needs of his church, and he doesn't consider even potentially changing jobs or careers or refusing promotions to make himself available for the ministry, could I just say that that person is also greedy of filthy lucre? Well, I would do it, but I got to work all the time, all the time. You see, we need to consider our job and our promotions not from the standpoint of what they add to our lifestyle, but how they affect our ministry. So if we don't have time for ministry, well, well, then you need to pray that God gives you a job that makes time for it. And by the way, that's what your pastor's praying for you. So maybe you'll lose it. So you'll find one that you can actually show up and do some stuff for the Lord. Gave you a little insight on how your pastor prays for you. I feel like I need to move on now. <laughs> You're praying that I lose my job? I'm praying you get freed up to do ministry. That's what I'm praying for you. And whatever needs to happen in your life to accomplish that, that's what needs to happen. That's what needs to happen. Next point, holding the mystery of faith. Holding the mystery of faith. And so these deacons are called to hold something. They, they've got to have something in their hand. And what it is specifically is the mystery of the faith. And that mystery of the faith could certainly include all the mysteries of the New Testament church, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. But it certainly includes the mystery of the faith, in other words, the mystery of the gospel. And so a deacon must preach the right gospel, Romans 16 and verse 25. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel, Paul writes, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. And, and so what we see is that the deacons in the Word of God have a great opportunity to minister the gospel, not only to the people they're ministering to within the body, but to extend that reach outside the body of Christ. And we don't have the time this morning, but if you look at Acts 6, and you look at those seven men that were selected, two of those men became very bold in their efforts to preach God's Word and to evangelize. In Acts chapter 7, you have a man named Stephen who's preaching before the nation of Israel. He was one of the seven deacons. In Acts chapter 8, you have a man named Philip. Philip the evangelist, and the Bible tells us and tracks through the book of Acts, his ministry. And that guy preached everywhere. Man, he preached the gospel everywhere. And it proves the point of 1 Timothy 3 and verse 13. And here's the point. They that have used the office of a deacon well, purchased to themselves a good degree, listen, and great boldness, in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. And it's just how God works, man. God gives opportunity to get the gospel into the community, into the world, 
We're all called to do that. But there's just something unique about a deacon in the body of Christ that holds the mystery of the faith, that applies the wisdom of God to every situation, and the wisdom of God always is going to start with the gospel in this situation. Does that make sense? It's powerful. Next point is this. They're proved. They're proved. And we're almost done. i got like five minutes. You guys tracking with me? You okay? You've all fallen asleep. Okay. <laughs> proved. We've we got to have some proven men. Proved means to examine, to discern, to approve by proving. That's what it means. And, and, and it says that these men must first be proved. And first is a, is a, is a, a term used to define order. If you ain't first, you last. I've heard somebody say that. I don't. <laughs> first means a priority. Before getting appointed to the deacon, you got to be a, you got to be proven and then appointed. And I want you to look at Second Corinthians chapter eight and verse twenty-two. Look at as Paul writes, and he talks about one of his brothers in Christ. I believe he's talking about Titus here in Acts chapter eight and verse twenty-two. Look what he says about Titus. We have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. That verse, to me, tells us how we are proven within the body of Christ. Let me give it to you. Two things. Number one, someone becomes proven oftentimes. In other words, not just once, not just twice, not just three times, someone is proven over the course of time Oftentimes, someone has been given opportunity and tasked with responsibility, and they've shown diligence every single time, oftentimes. That's how someone's proven. Number one, it happens over a course of time. There is no fast track to being proven. It has a start. It has to start at some point, and, and for us listening, it needs to start today. God wants to prove you starting today. So what responsibility do you have and are you faithful with it? The second point is in many things. The way we become proven is in many things. In many things. 2 Timothy 1, verses 16 to 18. The Bible talks about a man named Onesiphorus. Paul says that he's often refreshed me. He was not ashamed of my chain. When he was in Rome, he sought me out diligently and he found me. The Lord granted unto him that we find mercy in the day of, uh, of the Lord in that day. And in how... Many things he ministered to me at Ephesus. Thou knowest very well. This, this, this man had the reputation of being faithful and diligent in many things. Not just one thing, in many things. And, and listen, if you've been around this church for any amount of time, you know that you get to wear many hats. Nursery, toddler, cleaning team, tech team, bulletins, passing out connections cards, making the coffee. Does, does that make sense? There's many things that God wants to put in your lap to see if you'll be faithful with. And as you're faithful with many things, it helps prove your sincerity, your love for Christ, your faithfulness to the body of Christ. Look at Luke 16 and verse 10. Is it in the screen? Yeah, it is. Look, he that's faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that's unjust in least is unjust also in much. You want to get, you get, you want to get more re responsibility and opportunity? Be faithful in what you have now. Uh, Allie and I always tell this story. You know, when we got saved, we were in, a, we were in this college ministry at Decatur Baptist, and uh, it was really, you know, kind of small uh, to start with. And we would have, you know, small group hangouts at the guy's house that led it. And it was like, okay, you bring the chips, you bring the dip, 
you bring the coke, you know, I mean, you, you just bring something. You were tasked with something just menial. It was like stupid, like, why don't you just send somebody to buy all the chips? Why, this is dumb. Why, why, why do I have to bring a chip, you know, type thing. But, but I learned well, what that leader was doing was just seeing who was going to be faithful in the small things. Just bring a bag of chips. And man, listen, come hell or high water, I was bringing chips. You know what I'm saying? There was nothing stopping me from bringing chips to this activity. Why? Because I learned I needed to be faithful in that which was least. Is it going to make or break the party if I don't show up with my bag of chips? Nope. But what it's going to make or break is me and my opportunity to be proven. And, and, so, and so let me just encourage you, Christian, whatever God's given you now, be faithful with that. And God can trust you with more as time moves forward. Lastly, but certainly not leastly, second to last is blameless. This characteristic really is the umbrella that covers everything that we've talked about. Three, three areas where a Christian needs to be blameless. Number one, he needs to be blameless before God. That means he needs to be saved. That's what makes you blameless before God. Salvation in Jesus Christ makes you blameless without blame for your sin before God Almighty. But we also need to be blameless before other believers. We need to be an example of the believer. And as we look at 1 Timothy 3, it talks about the bishop and the deacon must be blameless. Unwarranted. It doesn't mean that people aren't going to blame you. It just means they have no root, no, no evidence that's true against you. And then we need to be blameless before the lost. Philippians 2 and verse 15 says that, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And that's us, by the way. We need to be blameless to have the testimony to preach the gospel to the lost. And then lastly, ruling their children and their houses well. In other words, the next generation is going to see the right example first and foremost in the home before they ever see it in the church. So our homes have to represent and reflect the ministry of Christ within the local body. As a matter of fact, that's the proving ground for ministry for many of us that have children, that have wives. Okay, so you got to come back next week because we're not done. But here's one I want to close with. We, we have to understand the biblical process, and we have to understand the biblical qualifications because this thing of the deacon for our church is so important because God's going to use it to minister to and with our body of believers here. But as we close, some of you may be saying, well, look, I'm not ever going to be a deacon. I'm not the husband of one and wife. Okay, I don't, I'm not called to rule my house well. Okay, that's awesome. That's true. But remember, these qualifications for all of us. So in other words, would, would, would we have the recommendation as Christians to actually be walking in faith in these things? Would others say of us, hey, when I look out among ourselves... I see that guy and that guy and that lady and that lady, and man, it's obvious. They have an honest report. It's obvious they're full of the Spirit of God. It's obvious they're full of God's wisdom. It's observable. They are Christ-like. And I know outside of here, they have a reputation and a testimony, even on the job, even in the community, that they're honest, that they're blameless, their family would agree. They may not agree with their stance on Christ, but they agree that they can't leverage any accusation against them rightly. The word of God comes out of their mouth. They praise and worship God Almighty because they're led by the Spirit of God in worship. And they're full of God's wisdom because anytime an issue comes up, they just go back to the Bible. 
Well, those are the people God's called us to be, called all of us to be, right? And so I hope that's you. And if it's not, it can be. It can be. Because that's the measure of Christ in our life. That's what it should look like. And so I hope that is an encouragement to you. Let me pray for us and we'll dismiss.